where's this going to end? It's a disaster and literally a basket case of a footy club, you could say. Probably the most difficult period of my life without any question. The constant media, constant pressure, constant worry about Jim. We were very close friends as well, so it's a devastating situation. You know the other side's obviously going through a really bad problem or a bad patch. And unfortunately, um, you know, a really good man lost his job at the end of that. So it wasn't a great day for football, really. But at 7.30, Bale rang me and he said, mate, they've got me. What do you mean? He said, mate, they terminated me, they've sacked me straight away. And I was just in silence. I couldn't believe it. Melbourne captain Brad Green, Demons stand-in president Don McClarty and Geelong forward Cam Mooney all played their part on the tumultuous afternoon of July 30, 2011. On a bitterly cold day down the Geelong Highway, the Cats inflicted the second biggest loss in the history of the game on a free-falling Melbourne. A 37-11, 233-7547 bashing. The events before and after that defeat will forever shape Melbourne's history. It was the late Dean Bailey's 83rd and last game as an AFL coach, sacked by a club that had become a political jungle. Coming up, you'll hear from some of the key players. Brad Green, the skipper on that fateful day against the Cats, and a man who lived through the nightmare at its coalface. Don McClarty, who was thrust into the presidential hot seat as his dear friend Jim Steins was tragically fighting a losing battle with cancer. Geelong goal kicker Cam Mooney, who knew he'd been part of something bigger than a game for four points. And Olympian Steve Monaghetti, with Australia's greatest distance runner, playing a quirky cameo on a wild weekend for his beloved D's. This is the story of relationship breakdowns. Firstly, between players and members of their administration. And secondly, between a senior coach and a CEO who had lost faith in him. It's the tale of how Chief Executive Cameron Schwab drove to that Geelong game knowing he was gone, only to find out 24 hours later he had been spared. In a high-stakes game of musical chairs, it would be Bailey and not Schwab who was left standing when the music stopped. Sacked with Melbourne sitting only a game and a half outside the top eight, but fighting a civil war internally. I'm Sam Edmund, and you're listening to Uncovered. An attractive offer was put in front of me. I'm an AFL career coach, so as I sit here today, I hold my head high. These are events which have traumatised our club in the last uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, it was heartbreaking, um, but this is what football's come to these days, and this is what the players wanted. It's probably going to take this for the AFL to change the rules. It's an absolute joke. There's no way it should be decided after another game. Guys come here for a win or a loss, and uh, that's what we should be leaving with. To gain a true understanding of the upheaval at Melbourne around this time, you need to consider the volcanic period that footy's oldest club was navigating. There was the soaring debt of 2008 that prompted Hawthorne President Jeff Kennett to suggest the Demons should relocate to the Gold Coast. There was the controversial departures of club stalwarts James McDonald, Brad Miller and Cameron Bruce at the end of 2010. Liam Jarrah took the Demons on a roller coaster. There was the dumping of a major sponsor whose co-owner admitted to racist comments. Back-to-back wooden spoons in 2008 and 2009 were painful, but it was the latter season which became the subject of an AFL tanking investigation that broke the player-administration relationship beyond repair. According to Brad Green, it opened a wound that would never be closed. I reckon it stemmed from back in um, 09, really. Um, when you when you're thinking about fractions where it first started, and um, and I know the investigation's been had and it's been spoken to um, in length about the tanking saga, um, but I think it all stemmed from from then. 
um, and the the angst on what what happened between um, management and players not happy with what went on, um, and then as years went on with the decisions that they made in 2010 to move on some senior players that you would have thought that they had um, careers that should have lasted longer at, at the footy club. And um, and as we know, and it's been proven um, with other clubs, that the longer you keep senior players on to bring younger players on the journey, um, the, the better that the, um, the side in the long run and, and, quick, and the quick return to... Hopefully, success is is vast improved rather than rely on youth to get you there, which it which it certainly didn't with our with our club. The Demons had appointed consultant Ray Andrews in 2010 to conduct a report into their operations, but Andrews never stood a chance. By then, a wary group of players had a laundry list of problems with club management that included playing games in Darwin, training at Casey Fields, and not being given what they felt was the best chance to win. Reviews get done, but the problem with reviews is when you do a review, who does the review go to? They get all this information in, um, and I don't know this for a fact, but you know, basically all the review goes to the management, and that's where all, I reckon, the angst and um, the frustration and belief where it was all coming from and stemming from, that they had all the information in their hands and basically they were, they were dealing with um, what they thought was the, the path that they wanted to travel where... The, the vast majority of the problems were stemming from from that. McClarty, who was taking on an increasingly active role as president for Steins, had a more philosophical memory of the process. No one likes a review because it, it, by by nature, um, the media grabs hold of it straight away and says that it must be a crisis. Um, you know, if you have a review in business, that's kind of standard procedure. And, it, you know, you look at all the things you're doing, how you can improve them, what made the issues be. So... Footy clubs are just a terrible place to have a review because it immediately, you know, you get the speculation on um, on what's going on. So I would say that um, nobody was really happy with, with the review, but it's a necessary thing to do occasionally to get someone from outside to have a look at your business and see if they can, you know, add to it. The players were worried for Bailey, who they felt was being undermined. By now, Schwab had given the strongest indication yet to the Melbourne board that he felt Bailey was not the right man to continue as coach. That word had got back to Bailey, and despite the lines of communication remaining open, the pair's relationship was on a drastic downward spiral. Green and his teammates were aligned with Bailey, but they had become involved in a game they don't sign up for, the political one. The skipper said he and the other players were well aware of a fallout between Bailey and Schwab, and potentially others. Uh, Yes, yeah, of course. Um, And, you know, when you look at, Again, you know, you, you go back to the most successful clubs, the key pillars in any club. You're looking at the president, the CEO, the footy manager and the coach. The four um, key pillars all have to be aligned and, and rowing that boat in, in the direction um, for any organisation, business, footy club, sporting club to, to succeed. And at the time, our club wasn't rowing in the one direction. Um, there was certainly senior management wanted to... Um, and this is my belief, wanted to go down a, um, sort of different paths and, and beliefs that, you know, that, you know Dean Bailey probably had. Um, you know, Cameron wanted to go down one path. Collins wanted to go down one path. And I think the players were all, all mixed in this sort of, um, how, how can you describe it, this big bubble that was, was brewing. Um, and in the end, 
Um, it wasn't going anywhere, and the frustrations sort of boiled into a belief that we, we believed as a playing group that, that Bowers was taking us as a, in a football sense. You know, that's all we can, can see in day-to-day running of how our football team's going to play and how we play was was the path that we believed that we were going on was was uh, was the right path. Um, and playing under under Neil and, and then playing under Dean, um, you know, I've got that much respect for Dean Bailey and the way he coached and taught me as a person and, and the belief that I had in him in taking our footy club where we needed to be was, was the right path. After bottom place finishes in Bailey's first two years in charge in 2008 and 2009 and a 12th in 2010, the 2011 season was slated as Melbourne's year of improvement. But instead of taking off, the Demons are about to blow up on the launch pad. Melbourne is a game out of the eight when Green walks onto the set of Fox footies on the couch on the Monday before the Round 19 Geelong game. The captain is pushed by host and former Demon Jared Healy on whispers of a relationship breakdown between the football department and the administration. The players had bitten their tongues for so long, but on live television, a routine show exploded when Green let viewers in on the toxicity permeating through his club. Basically, it was, we were in a toxic environment as a football club. Um, the place, going to work, going as players, was, wasn't. And the players' frustration is that we felt, you know, this is this is very toxic. Um, senior management were, you know, we we're going to Darwin and we we're, we're basically, um, we were, you know, we had home games in Darwin and day, day before a game um, in Darwin, we we're going out and doing clinics and doing appearances. Um, we were, we we all always believed that sometimes that um, when you're looking at a foot, football team that the the footy club um, is there to win and it should be the first priority rather than the business sense of the footy club before um, performance um, and and the frustration grew from the players and being um, and I felt that from the players and you know they were constantly um, coming to me and. And you know, as, as a playing group, that's their business and how they want to run the run the business side. But it just got really frustrating that um, that it it wasn't going that way. And I got asked a question on the couch, and I just believed that there was there was certainly tension between senior management and the senior coach at the time. Um, and in a roundabout way, I don't know how I said it, and and basically what. Um, how it went, but I, I, I remember, and I, I think it was basically along those lines of that um, we've got one sort of one all going one way and the other all going the other way. It was was going in the wrong, dire- wrong direction, and and sometimes when you feel as a captain that you need to stand up and and do something about it, that I thought it was a time that we, we needed a shift, and probably wasn't the right place to do it on on the couch, but it certainly got things um, you know moving. The cat was out of the bag. Green's response on live TV was enough to raise the eyebrows of McClarty, who the next morning demanded a meeting with the skipper. Don came in and, and basically said, Brad, I want, to, I want a meeting with you. And um, I thought, oh, here we go. I thought to myself that he wants to know what I, what I meant from um, the previous night on On the Couch. And he, we basically went into a room and sat down and he said, we need to – I want to know your um, – how you feel and, and, and why it, it came across like that. And we just had an open and honest conversation. Um, and then it basically stemmed from that that we, we need to do something, um, which is terrific from a, from a board and um, a head figure like Donnie and, and Jimmy to say that 
you know, if uh, the senior players and it's coming from the captain that um, there's something going on, we need to investigate and do something about it. What had been simmering beneath the surface internally for months had now exploded into the public domain. The fuse had been lit on a fiery week, with an ailing Jim Steins hosting a crisis meeting with the leadership group at McClarty's house on the Wednesday before the Cats game. I do remember we spoke to Brad uh, uh, pretty much straight away, but as I recall, Jim was pretty sick around that time as well, um, and we were kind of managing him, and, and but, but Jim, as you know, is an extremely strong character, uh, and he wanted to be involved in all that as well, even though he was very ill at the time. Um, so what my recollection really is just managing what's a really tricky situation um, uh, with Jim also wanting to be heavily involved, obviously Brad, and Brad's an outstanding um, young person and you know, always has been, um, calls a spade a spade, um, which you'd expect. So, um, yeah, I think it was just one of those, uh, we, I know I recall sort of trying to work through it with them leading up to that, that week and obviously all around that there was lots of issues going on. Um, and, yeah, just a very difficult management um, piece of work, really. Yeah, and you talk about Jim being hands-on. The, the version of events I was told was that uh, on the Wednesday of that week, and, again, I don't expect you to remember the specifics as yeah. such, but uh, Jim wanted to talk to the players at, at your house, and this gets back to him being so hands-on despite his circumstance and that the leadership group sort of got a chance to explain to Jim directly what their concerns may have been at the time. Yeah, I think that's actually correct. And my recollection is, because you've got to remember, Jim was very much a um, a big believer in face-to-face contact and hearing things firsthand. He didn't like hearing things secondhand. Um, and he was very good at getting the truth out of people. So yeah. uh, most of the meetings Jim conducted over his time at Melbourne was all face-to-face, whether it was with, you know, sponsors, cheer squad, whoever. Um, he was very strong on that. So... Um, yeah, he, and he had a great relationship with the players. And obviously, um, um, you know, he was very close to Brad and some of those senior guys. Steins was ailing, but he was always a hands-on president. Despite his ill health, the Demons great had an urgent desire to get to the bottom of the situation. The players told their president they felt they weren't being given the best chance to win and that the angst between the coaching staff and senior management and the lack of clear direction was sabotaging the side. Well, after that Tuesday, we had that meeting... Jimmy said, "Righto, we all. I need to need to sit down with uh, the senior leaders, the players, um, and yourself. So we all went round to Don McClarty's house. Um, with Jimmy, we sat there and he listened um, to what we had to say um, as a leadership group. And um, he said, right, um, you know, tell me what what's going on. I need to know.'" And obviously the board doesn't know everything that's going on. They mainly get their source of information from senior management. Um, and he wanted to know from a player's perspective, you know, how the coach was going, how he was coaching, you know, from – he just basically they, – the board wanted feedback um, in, in what was going on, and that was a Wednesday. And we just provided that in an open and honest conversation. Searching for a circuit breaker, the Demons trained in Geelong on the Friday and, for the first time, stayed down there the night before the game. In Geelong, there was talk among the players and coaches on the dismissal of Cameron Schwab as CEO. The next morning, Schwab himself drove down the Geelong Highway knowing his second stint at the Demons was over. He had been told his contract would not be renewed. Coincidentally, the contractual deadline on whether Schwab's deal would be automatically extended fell the day after the Geelong game, July 31st. That Sunday had been earmarked for a formal announcement that Schwab would be moving on. 
and my understanding was that um, it was going to be announced on the Sunday that um, Cameron wasn't going to be reappointed as, as CEO. Steins was unwell and couldn't make it to Skilled Stadium. McClarty substituted for the pre-match function and had his wife Claire for company on what would quickly become the stuff of nightmares. Yet despite the upheaval that engulfed his club during the week, McClarty said the Demons could win when he spoke to the ABC pre-game. I told Mark McClure, who's a mate of mine, that I thought on radio that I thought we were a sneaky chance to win because of our record down there. And then when we lost by 31 goals, he was the first one on the phone to me to tell me I'd have to be flipping kidding, you know, a sneaky chance. And we got annihilated. Melbourne great David Schwartz was similarly bullish, telling SEN before the bounce a big upset was looming, a prediction he was reminded of all afternoon. Yeah, I haven't given up on him yet, Kev, but, uh, gee, I'm starting to... Just uh, so there was wobble, upset wobble, brewing before yeah, the game. Wobble a little bit. It'd be handy if they could uh, get a handball or a kick. Um, they haven't, haven't been near the footballers yet. I'm changing my tip. <laughs> well, you can do that, Dave. I can. As long as it's before the 25-minute mark of the first quarter. Yep. And uh, 24.50 gone. Well, you just you can squeeze, squeeze in if you want to change in. your selection. But looking back with the benefit of hindsight, McClarty believes the warning signs may have been there. I remember Liam Jarrah warmed up in a puffer jacket which was probably, when you look back on it now, it's probably a bit of a sign because, um, you know, Liam was a, a, a desert man and um, not used to the cold. And uh, I don't think anyone's ever warmed up in a puffer jacket before, but Liam did. <laughs> and then actually during the, the early the last quarter, there was a, a fairly strong racist comment from just behind me about Liam. So um, that was probably the wrong time to take me on. And I, uh, I certainly made my feelings known about that person as well. If the racist slur on Jarrah caused McClarty's anger to immediately boil over, there was another thing irritating him. During the game, I sat next to one of the committee men from Geelong and um, he was one of those guys who, who has a habit of writing down goals in his record. So he's sitting there next to me with his pen just continually writing a goal to whoever it was. And I think halfway through the third quarter, it was about 23 goals to two or something. And uh, he turned to me and said, oh, Don, would you like to mark one down? Which was a pretty <laughs> pretty smart comment. I nearly threw him over the balcony. At halftime, McClarty's mate had marked 20 goals to Geelong players and one to Melbourne. The score was an incredible 124 to 10 at the main break. When the final siren sounded to put the D's out of their misery, the margin was 186 points, only four points shy of the biggest win ever recorded, 190 points by Fitzroy, also against Melbourne in 1979. Steve Johnson kicked seven goals, Joel Selwood had 43 possessions, and Cameron Mooney helped himself to five goals in his first senior game for two months. Dangerous here, Stevie J. Pounces on the ball, 55 metres out. Here's Mooney. He's got it. The kick's on its way. It's a beautiful kick off the boot. Melbourne had a kick in the pants. They just didn't work hard enough. They were outrun. They were outmuscled. They were out everything in that quarter. And I hope Dean Bailey goes over there and gives them a shake of the jumper and say, boys, unacceptable. Pull your fingers out. They are just doing whatever they like, Geelong, at the moment. It is like watching the Washington Generals of the Harlem Globetrotters and Steve Johnson's got another one. He just walked around characteristic Steve Johnson style just stepped around the corner, kicked another goal. This is an absolute drubbing. I mean, it's not it's not good for the game to see a side just completely demoralised like Melbourne is at the moment. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's sad to see. Dangerous here because Stevie J marks. He just handballs into the goal. Mooney's got five! I 
don't think this will go down as the worst half of football ever played by a side. I, I think Melbourne's performance today, but I, I don't think anyone could recall. Uh, they've only kicked the one goal. Cook. You've got to give them a cook. Well, what do you say? Oh, come on, keep your chins up, boys. There's still a chance. No way. I look, I don't know, David. I don't think we've seen a performance like this before. I don't think any coach has ever found himself in this position before with this uh, insipid performance at half-time. I mean, generally, you know, there's there's some fight, yeah, isn't there? I yeah. mean, this is so insipid. I, I just... What would you do, Kate? I mean, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I, I, I don't know what you could possibly do. I haven't seen a performance as so lethargic as this. I reckon I've been in the game a long time, but I, I, this to me is just perplexing. I've never been never be more embarrassed no, it's, in a side, and particularly because no. I barrack for them, than I have in that first half from Melbourne right there. That was despicable. He's going to get a back sellword as he's running, and he kicks it up inside the 50. Steve Johnson again! He's just going to kick it around the corner. Will it swing back? for the Cats and one of the most miserable days for the Melbourne Football Club in their history. 37 goals, 11, 233 points. Melbourne, 7547, the margin, 186. The Cats were second on the ladder. And Mooney had made a stunning return to form. On any other day, it would be reason to celebrate. But the Cats forward admitted the reaction was subdued. Remember I said something to Chip for all that? I can't remember the words. But you could just see the look in his face. Because the ball was coming down at a million miles an hour. There was, he had no help. Um, you know, the mid, our midfielders were walking it through the midfield and getting it into the forward line. And, you know, it's actually... Um, when, you, when you win by that much, like it's, it's, not, it's not a time to gloat. Because you know, it's, you know the other side's obviously going through a really bad problem or a bad patch. And unfortunately, um, you know, a, a really good man lost his job at the end of that. So it wasn't a great day for football, really. The magnitude of what had just happened hit Green while he was still walking off the ground and a private post-game function with Bailey only reinforced the gut-wrenching reality that the Demons had been split open. I remember walking off the ground and thinking, geez, we're in, we're in trouble yeah, we just got beaten by, by um, a record amount. Um, you know, the, everyone's going to come for us. Um, you know, we're all going to be under pressure, the player group, uh, me as captain. You put your hand up in any defeat like that as, as a leader of the football club and captain of the footy club, I put my hand up and, and take full responsibility of the playing group and not getting up, no doubt. And you're walking in and, and Bales is, is having his post-mortem and, um, as I do, um, we go over a couple of things, and and then I sit down in the change rooms with with Bales, um, and we're just sitting there, two of us. Every player had left the change rooms. Um, you know, it was probably two and a half hours after the game had finished. And we're just sitting there chatting, um, and he basically just said to me, he said, "Mate, I reckon I'm in strife." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Mate, I reckon." Um, from this defeat that I'll be in trouble. And, and you know, I'll just, just asking myself questions on, you know, where we've gone wrong, what's what's happening. You know, we've had a week that we've had. Um, being a captain, I, I took full responsibility for, one, making Dean feel like that, you know, ch- sort of chucking him under the bus. I take full responsibility on on that. As a, as a playing group, we should. 
you know, trying to turn your footy club around and, and sort, of, sort of making them um, a better football club. And, you know, I, you could just see it spiralling and I'm going to myself, oh, where are we going to go? Green had barely got off the skilled stadium surface when the radio switchboards lit up like a Christmas tree with angry supporters wanting to vent. I am absolutely that pissed off. It's not funny, mate. I've come all the way from Benio. I'm a demon supporter. My heart beats true for the red and blue, mate. And I heard a Richmond supporter ring up a couple of weeks ago and talk about putting his, his membership in the microwave, mate. I wouldn't even put mine in the toilet right now. 31 goals they lost by. I'm a 31-year consecutive member of the Red Legs. Uh, so embarrassed today. I drove an hour and a half to get to that game today to sit in the freezing cold to watch our team play with no heart, no passion, no coach, no leadership, no anything, and I've had a bloody gut ball. We play like a nice pack of boys. Not good enough to see this performance week in, week out. We're not even playing for the jumper ox. I think Bailey has to go. It's going to take, I mean, for the board to sack him. Former Melbourne captain and Team of the Century member Gary Lyon had been calling the Western Bulldogs West Coast game at Etihad Stadium for Triple M on the same afternoon. But such was the gravity of what was unfolding, he too was compelled to comment. That's not a loss. Mm. That's a destruction of a club. Bailey had addressed his players. Now he faced questions from the media. I feel uh, embarrassed. There probably isn't strong enough words to, to suggest how poor we were today. Is it the worst loss you've been to touch out of this That's a serious question. Is it really? Of course it is. I mean, you don't, you don't get beaten by that too often, do you? Oh, look, as a coach, you, uh, you take um, absolute responsibility of what happens uh, this week and the rest of the year and the last, uh, last three and a half years. So the, uh, that's where it sits. When you're coaching in the, in the AFL, everything that, that happens within the football club is, is your responsibility. And I stand there absolutely taking the whole responsibility for today. There's no question about that. Well, today's, uh, a loss like today certainly doesn't um, forego very well for anyone who's in the last year of their contract. The sun had set on one of the darkest days in Melbourne's long history when Green got in his car for the drive home. His mind was racing. I just had no answers. You know, driving back, it's a long drive from Geelong when you have a defeat like that and you're, you're going through and the coach is saying to you to that, you've had the week that you've had. You know, the, the CEO was in trouble on the Friday and we're going, where's this going to end? It's, uh, it's a disaster and we're literally um, a basket case of a footy club, you could say. Up in the stands that day, Melbourne fan Steve Monaghetti had sat through it all. Like every Demon supporter still at the ground by the final siren, the Australian marathon legend was pretty keen to hot-foot it to the car for the drive home to Ballarat. But when his daughter wanted to see the players, Monaghetti reluctantly made his way to a change room full of inconsolable men. He was about to play a part in the circus. No one else in there. Me, Emma, coaching staff, you know, and Cameron Swab and all the players behind us sort of bit of robe all crying down in the corner, sad, you know, people commiserating with each other. And, and um, anyway, um, Cameron Swab comes out and goes, oh, mate, look, it's, we re- I really appreciate you coming over and supporting us. This is our darkest day. And I said, oh, you know, it actually reminds me of, you know, Barcelona, you know, I had a really bad run and, you know, I really appreciated just having a sounding board chat to a couple of people, you know, and this is how I dealt with it. And he said, oh, is that right? Look, and anyway, he disappeared for a minute, went back sort of through a door and um, came back out and he said, look, I'm just in with Dean and the coaching staff. Would you be able to just come in and 
relate that story to them. So, you know, I went and chatted to Dean and he said, oh, thanks, you know, I appreciate it. Anyway, I'm driving home and they rang and said, oh, would you be able to come down to Melbourne and talk to the players tomorrow? Same sort of thing. So I said, yeah, yeah, no worries, I'll do whatever. So we came back to Ballarat and then the next morning drove down and I had my Olympic uniform from that run in Barcelona on underneath and I um, had a Melbourne jumper and I, I threw it on the ground and said, you know, at the moment, you don't deserve to wear that Melbourne jumper, you know, until you do. So it's some cock and bull story about, you know, the loyalty of the jumper. And I had my uniform on underneath and told him the story about there's this sort of legend story in um, Australian marathon running where if you're going to pull out of a marathon when you've got an Australian singlet on, if you're a male, you've got to take your singlet off because it's okay for you to pull out personally, Sam, and disappoint yourself but you don't disappoint your country. So you take your Australian emblem and singlet off because that's letting down your country. So I kind of related that story about the footy jumper, you know, at the moment, you know, you've taken that footy jumper off and you don't deserve to put it on until you earn the right to wear the Melbourne Footy Club, you know, the history and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, that was the story. McClarty's phone ran hot all the way home after the game. The next day, the Melbourne board gathered at his Turak Road home, which was surrounded by the media who had set up camp during the day and weren't in a rush to leave come the evening. So we had a meeting on the next night, I think, at my house, and um, you know there was the press was camped in my driveway because I lived on Turak Road. We don't live there now, but um, yeah, the press was camped there all all day and, and all night, and. Uh, everybody had left, and I remember um, my wife saying to me, "This at midnight, there's still people in our driveway." So I got up in my, I think I was in my undies and my dressing gown, and I went down and I opened the front door, and the lights came on from the TV cameras, and it was uh, Damien Barris. And um, I walked out and said, "Mate, we're all in bed. There's no one here. You can go home." And he said, "Oh, thanks very much, Don." So. There you go. So Damien was the last man standing at my place at midnight, just hoping for a story. And you just went out and saw him in your undies. Well, I might have scared him off. I tell you, that might have been. I don't think he rushed back after that. (laughs) (laughs) By then, the difficult decisions had been made. Steins had rung Bailey to tell him he'd been sacked. Look, basically I had to tell him, and it wasn't something that I was looking forward to. Um, I I don't, because I have a tremendous amount of respect for Dean. I think he's 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 all he he was faced with a tough job from the start, and um, you know he 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 did what he could. But having already made the decision to part ways with Schwab, the board determined they couldn't fire the coach and the CEO on the same day. A shock, Schwab got a very different call to Bailey. Two of them, in fact. First, he was asked by a board member if he would be open to continuing should the board determine it the best course of action. After saying yes, Schwab was called on Sunday night and, given he lived close by, was summoned to McClarty's house. The CEO walked the media gauntlet and, once inside, was told by Steins that the club had made a mistake and the pair agreed that he would continue for at least another year. Schwab was somewhat torn given it was clear many wanted him gone, but at the same time he felt obligated to stay given the appointments he had made and the off-field progress he'd felt the club had made. But it was the lack of on-field progress that ultimately cost Bailey his job. Jimmy's just given the news that I've, I've been removed as coach and um, I've been sacked. It is what it is. You, you, I walk into the job eyes wide open, knowing what the expectations are, knowing what the results could be. And I remember Mick Malthouse last year in the Coach Association saying there's a bullet flying around, we've all got our names on it. Unfortunately, I got hit last night. Yeah, the thing about um, starting to pick and choose relationships is that you start to, you know, that also becomes a, an absolute distraction and...
and I've always had uh, great support from, from the players and the coaches and uh, I continue to have that now. Green vividly remembers his former coach telling him the news. So the next morning we went to had a post-mortem basic recovery. Um, Dean came in and had another meeting with us. Um, I still remember the meeting. Um, and then I was at home on the couch um, at 7.30 and there was rumours floating around and I had a couple of messages. Um, but at 7.30, Bale rang me um, and he said, mate, they've got me. What do you mean? He said, mate, they've, uh, they've terminated me. They've sacked me straight away. And I was just in silence. I couldn't believe it. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, how can this happen? Um, you know, I was I was in disbelief. I, I felt like um, it was all my fault um, as a leader and as a captain of the footy club um, to see a coach get sacked up after the performance that we put on, put on the day before and... Um, yeah, I was totally um, shattered with it. And, you know, I was totally shattered in the way the footy club went at the state to, to sack Bowles. You know, we won game out of the eight. Yeah, we had a bad performance. Yeah, we were horrible. Um, we should take responsibility as a playing group. But the last thing I felt that we needed to do was sack Dean Bailey. Um, and then I thought to myself, well, what about Shrubby? Is he, you know, what's going on here? Um and then in the end, um, we, we see that... Well, I don't know that Cameron was um, was ever terminated. That's only what, what I was told. And um, and that could be that could be all wrong. I don't know. Um, and I've never been um, privy to the to that. Um, but when you when it's coming from um, good sources, that that's what happened on the Friday. And then all of a sudden, it turns around and. Look, I, I, my re- recollection and, and thinking back on, on it, you know, it's hard to have a coach and a CEO get sacked on the same day. Mm. So one's one's got to survive and one's got to build the build the pieces back up and try and get it going again. And and that was the belief. The belief was that the coach had to go after that performance and um, the CEO survives and he's got to pick up the pieces and get that going again. Steins tragically lost his battle with cancer inside the next eight months. The football great as influential off the field as on with his debt demolition campaign bringing the Demons back from the brink under his presidency. McClarty will continue as president until his resignation in June 2013. It was a five-year term at a tremendously difficult time for the club, but he insisted the board remained united throughout. Um, it was a very difficult time for, for everyone involved in the footy club because, as I say, it wasn't as if... Um, uh, we were at odds in terms of personalities and things like that. We, we were we were all obsessed with getting the Melbourne Footy Club to a point we'd have success. Um, we'd worked so hard for three years to do that, um, and none of us wanted to be in that position. And we we, we all uh, were very close to doing. Um, so it's it's a very it's like any any time terminations happen. And again, I related a bit to business, but it's the same thing. Um, you know, it's just a very, very difficult time. You've got to look at all the, the, the um, businesses around the country right now who are having to stand down staff. Um, now, I know it's a different event, but often you're very close to the people. and You know, it impacts their lives, their families, their, um, their you know, everything they're going to do in the future. And it's a really difficult, you know, situation. So it was a very upsetting time for uh, a lot of reasons, and and you know, but unfortunately, hard decisions have to be made. Um, 
And well, I guess one of the things I remember is that we're always, as a board, we were united um, in our in our approach in that even if we had disagreements of opinion, once we settled on what our majority position was, then our board was totally unanimous and committed to that. And that was something Jim um, insisted on from the start, that we were one in all in. And even if some of us might have had a different opinion to others, then that had to be um, taken into account. But as a group, we made decisions and then we all stuck by it. Bailey would heartbreakingly lose his own fight to cancer less than three years later. Green's tenure as Melbourne captain would last only one season. He was replaced by new coach Mark Neal before the 2012 season with young co-captains Jack Grimes and Jack Trengove chosen to take over. Green maintains the club made the wrong call in sparing Schwab and sacking Bailey. Any business organisation, when when you're doing those things, um, you've got to stick to your guns. You know, you make a decision in anything like that and a big decision, but... You know, you've got to go with your footy club at the time. And um, at the time when you've got a playing group that's all behind Dan Bailey and you're fighting tooth and nail and, and people will say to us, we didn't fight tooth and nail, that's wrong game. And, yeah, I've got, you know, I've got no comeback for that um, because, you know, the defeat and the, the scoreboard's the scoreboard. Um, and I'm still ashamed of it, of the game today. But, you know... We and I definitely took full responsibility of Dean getting sacked on that on that Geelong game, and you know the way the the club went down was was something that still doesn't sit right with me. Um, till this day, I still you know feel sick about it. Really, um, it's you know it's uh, it, it cut deep. July 30, 2011. It was the day Melbourne suffered the second biggest defeat in the history of the game. But as you've just heard, there was much more to the turmoil than what happened inside the boundary line on that day. Join us on the next episode of Uncovered, where we pull back the curtain on another big footy story from years gone by.